Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Pacific Powers, the U.S. gathers regional partners to talk tough on China. Brazil on the brink calls for a national lockdown as COVID cases there surge. Shortages and suspensions, Europe facing more delays in vaccinating citizens. And do not adjust your screen. It's art but not as we know it. Christy CEO explaining why this digital masterpiece is worth $69 million. Welcome once again to First Move. Great to be with you on another day where vaccine news is dominating the agenda. This time it's Novavax. Remember, we spoke to the CEO last week, well, Novavax saying that their vaccine has 96% efficacy against the original COVID strain, 86% efficacy against the UK variant in their late stage trials. No surprise, the stock up more than 15% pre-market. Now, as we discussed with the CEO, it's all about the quest for approvals. So fingers crossed there. President Biden, in the meanwhile, issuing his de facto barbecue challenge last night. He wants vaccines available for all Americans by May 1st and small groups to meet for the July 4th holidays. Fingers crossed on that. But what about the rest of the world? Well, vaccine hopes like that, at least. And stimulus shots from either side of the Atlantic powering global stocks yesterday. And we are giving back a little, as you can see here, pre-market. Why? Well, as of course, take a look at bond yields becalmed for much of the week. Well, now U.S. yields are back up just shy of that 1.6% earlier today. And European yields are higher too, despite the European Central Bank's pledge to front load their bond buying purchases. It's a case of whack-a-mole as far as central banks and bond yields are concerned. It's a global story too. In the meantime, lots of news out of Asia. Hong Kong taking a hit as the US blasted China for new efforts to weaken the democracy in Hong Kong. The Hang Seng now down 23% from its all-time highs. China today also fining 12 of its tech firms for what it calls monopolistic behaviour, including Tencent, which fell, as you can see, more than 4% on fears of a wider Beijing clampdown on its business. The fines, let's be clear, were puny, but the point, I think, is potent. And on that note, in the past hour, the CEO of Ant Group announcing his resignation as China moves to limit that company's growing power in the fintech space. Beijing, if you remember, forcing Ant Group to pull the plug on their expected IPO last year. Simon Hugh says he's stepping down because of personal reasons. Well, there's a lot going on there, too. All right, there's lots to discuss. Let's get to the drivers. President Biden currently meeting virtually with members of the so-called Quad, the leaders of Japan. India, Australia and the United States strategizing over regional issues like security, trade and the recovery from COVID, not to mention how to handle China. Selena Wang joins us live from Tokyo. Selena, no shortage of issues to discuss, particularly given what we've seen in China in the last 24 hours. Talk us through the Quad meeting. Julia, absolutely. We are expecting discussion around increasing capacity for COVID-19 vaccines, around collaboration on climate change, as well as securing the Indo-Pacific region. But of course, the real symbolism here is that these four countries are 
all increasing their concerns about China's growing assertiveness. Now, while high-level officials from each of these countries have met before, this is the first time that the leaders of these nations are meeting together in a summit. Now, Beijing, for its part, has denounced the Quad as an anti-China bloc, as being emblematic of poisonous Cold War mentality. But in recent months, we have seen relations between China and each of these Quad members deteriorate dramatically. Here in Japan, there is increasing alarm about increasing Chinese military incursions in the disputed East China Sea. When it comes to Australia, after Australia called for an open investigation into the origins of COVID-19, many analysts saw China impose what they see as politically motivated sanctions on a variety of Australian commodities. And then when it comes to India, China and India tensions have simmered ever since the border crisis. So it is clear that among these countries, there is a growing cohesion that they need to have a joint pushback against China. Julia? Yeah, and the response to this, I mean, you called it there, the Chinese foreign minister last year calling this an anti-China front line or a mini NATO. It reflects America's, quote, Cold War mentality, Selena. China making it really clear how they feel about not being included in this discussion. Absolutely. But experts I speak to say that though this meeting does break new ground, there are limits to what the Quad can achieve and that it's unrealistic this would become a formal institution, that it would become a formal military alliance like NATO. And part of the reason is that to be effective... Analysts say that this needs to be more than a shop to talk about the mounting risks of a growing China. There needs to be actual concrete action. And China's state tabloid has called this a flimsy group and that it will ultimately amount to nothing. The real challenge is that while the Quad members all agree that they are concerned about a rising China, they have struggled to find cohesion around the strategy. They have differing priorities and strategic ties to China. However, RAND analysts say that if Beijing does step up its military aggression on other countries, we could see this turn into a more robust military alliance. But what we do know is that multilateral engagement and deep work with allies is a key pillar of the Biden administration's strategy in dealing with China. And what's telling is that next week, the U.S. Secretary of State, as well as the U.S. Defense Secretary, will be coming to Japan in their first international trip. And that's That means that they're sending a signal that America is back. They are on the side of their allies and they're not going to leave them out in the cold. Julia? Yes, but the toughest talk here is probably going to be on climate change rather than on China. And that's the bottom line. Selena Wang, thank you so much for that. All right, Brazil's richest and most populous state shutting down. The state governor of Sao Paulo announced an emergency lockdown on Thursday and warned that Brazil is collapsing under soaring coronavirus cases and deaths. Matt Rivers is there for us. Matt, great to have you uh, on the show. I read this morning that of 22 out of 26 states, the intensive care occupancy now has surpassed 80 percent. This wave of the virus for worse than what we saw the first time around. Yeah, you know, the last time I was in Brazil, Julia, was only about six weeks ago. We were in the Amazonian city of Manaus, where a brutal second wave was hitting that city. Deaths, cases soaring at the time. Uh, Experts were telling us that it was in part due to gatherings, in part due to a new Brazilian variant that all signs point to being uh, more contagious uh, than previous versions of this virus. What was happening in Manaus is now basically happening in the rest of the country. You mentioned 22 uh, states 
where the ICU capacity is at or above 80%. Just today, that number has actually gone up to 23 of 26 Brazilian states, as well as the country's federal districts. So 27 different districts, 24 of them are at 80% ICU capacity or higher, uh, and 11 of them at this point are at 90% or higher, which puts them at the risk of collapsing. It is an absolute disaster in Brazil uh, right now. Just this week, Julia, we've seen two new daily records set in terms of coronavirus deaths recorded in a single day, Tuesday and Wednesday. It was on Wednesday, nearly 2,300 deaths were recorded in a single day. Uh, And we know the United States has the most coronavirus deaths cumulatively throughout this pandemic, but Brazil's seven-day moving average, which we can show you on the screen here, it's trending in the wrong direction. It is obviously going up at the same time that the number of deaths in the U.S. is going down. Brazil's seven-day moving average is actually higher than what we're seeing in the U.S. right now. And, Julia, despite all of this, Jair Bolsonaro, the president of Brazil, actually told Brazilian people this week, this is not a joke, to, quote, stop whining. And he said that the biggest risk to this country is due to economic crisis, due to shutdowns, despite the fact that right now in Brazil we are in the worst days of this pandemic, indisputably, so far. Yeah, Matt, I mean, every nation has faced the balance between lockdowns and economic crisis versus the health implications of of this virus. But there is a middle point. There's wearing masks, there's social distancing, there's behaving responsibly. Uh, The idea of calling people wimps for for acting like this or wanting lockdown measures is, is crazy to me. How can you find a balance? And is that balance simply not being found anywhere? I mean, I mean, I think in certain places in Brazil, people are taking this more seriously than others. But we know, for example, in Rio de Janeiro, we're in Sao Paulo right now. Uh, in Rio de Janeiro, you know, there's still bars that are open until 5 p.m. I mean, there is absolutely a, a, a need for people to continue to make money, to continue to earn a living. No one is denying that. But as you say, there has to be a middle ground, especially at a time when so many Brazilians are dying every day and it's not going to get better anytime soon, if you look at the occupancy rates in these ICUs, those are just staggering levels across the country. Uh, It's really bad at this point, Julia, Uh, and and I'm not exactly sure, especially with the shortage of vaccines in this country, how things get better uh, substantively anytime soon. Yeah, you're forced to go into lockdown when your healthcare system's completely overwhelmed. Matt Rivers in Sao Paulo, thank you for being there for us and telling the story. AstraZeneca. Fights back. The company says there's no evidence that its vaccine causes blood clotting. Several European countries have stopped using it for now, while reports of clots are investigated. Melissa Bell joins us now. Melissa, can you give us any sense of the numbers here? Because it's actually quite fascinating that AstraZeneca felt the need today to come out and say, look, we've done these big trials and this is not anything that we found to give us concern. Yeah, I think we've lost her there. Well, we shall try and get Melissa back. She looked very beautiful there in her frozen state. We'll try and get her back. But for now, we shall move on. All right, let me bring you up to speed with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. A top UN official says Myanmar's deadly crackdown on protesters likely meets the threshold for crimes against humanity. At least 12 more people were killed by security forces Thursday, according to a watchdog group. It says more than 2,000 others have been detained since the coup, many of whose whereabouts remain unknown. 
For the third time this year, there's been a mass kidnapping in Nigeria. Police say armed men stormed a college in the northwest of the country early Friday and abducted an unknown number of female students. One witness says the men made a, quote, beeline for the girls' hostel, even though the boys' dormitory was closer. Pakistan has banned TikTok for the second time. A court in Peshawar ordered the ban, saying the mobile video app spreads, quote, unethical and immoral content and is detrimental to youth. TikTok says it has strong safeguards to keep inappropriate content off the platform. All right, still to come on First Move, the African Development Bank warns of a, quote, lost decade unless more is done to relieve COVID-19 debt. And a digital-only artwork sells for near $70 million at Christie's. We take a look at the technology behind the newest art craze. That's all coming up. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, live from New York, where tech stocks are set to open lower. The Dow, however, on target for fresh records. Call it a freaky Friday on Wall Street. The Dow and the Nasdaq switching leadership roles once again today, just like Jamie Lee Curtis and Lindsay Lohan in the movie. Yes, it's a Friday. Tech volatility all tied to the bond bungee jump. Treasuries tranquil for much of the week, but they are moving higher again today, pressuring rate-sensitive tech stocks. Now, speaking of trading places, new evidence of growing pains in the post-Brexit era. UK exports to the EU plunging by more than 40% in January in its first month outside the EU. The EU imports into the UK also taking a hit down almost 30%. The UK, of course, went into lockdown in January. So that also will be playing into these numbers as well. Now, AstraZeneca fights back. Take two. The company says there's no evidence that its vaccine causes blood clotting. Several European countries have stopped using it for now, while reports of clots are investigated. Melissa Bell, we hope, is back with us. Melissa, are you there? Yes, you are. You're moving. Good. Talk us through this. I was saying before that, do you have any sense of the numbers here? Because it's quite fascinating to see AstraZeneca come forward here and say, everybody, this is not what our... um, data suggests is a problem for this vaccine. That's right. We've had another statement today explaining that, in fact, the uh, level of uh, illnesses uh, related to blood clots was uh, less in the vaccinated population than it was in the general one, that, in fact, uh, fighting back, as you say, Julia, in favour of the safety of its vaccine. Now, in terms of the figures, we do have an idea because we heard yesterday from France's health minister, a number of countries have taken the other view, continuing to vaccinate with the AstraZeneca vaccine, and France is one of them. What the health minister said was that, look, 5 million Europeans have been vaccinated so far. We're talking about issues with about 30 of them. Uh, those were the words of the French health minister. And yet, of course, on the other side, all of those countries, one after another, Bulgaria, the latest, announcing either that they're stopping uh, pausing the use of the AstraZeneca vaccine entirely or at least batches of it. And of course, the consequences of that are twofold, Julia. First of all, there is that ripple effect when it comes to doubts about uh, the safety of the vaccine. We heard from Thailand overnight pausing its rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine as it awaits the results from the European investigations. But the other consequence is, of course, for Europe's vaccination rollout. We've been following it these last few weeks, Julian. As you know, it's been painfully slow. Uh, this 
in terms of one of the three vaccines that are currently available to Europeans, a fourth has now been approved, the Johnson & Johnson, but it has yet to be delivered to Europeans. The three vaccines, of the three vaccines that are currently available, uh, this one is going to be unavailable in a number of European countries. This will do nothing uh, to help with a vaccination rollout that's been uh, pretty slow already and already beset by substantial supply issues, Julia. Yeah, multiple challenges there. Melissa Bell, thank you for joining us and uh, have a good weekend. All right, now on to an exclusive interview on First Move. The African Development Bank unveils its 2021 economic outlook very shortly. And we've got a preview. The bank sees growth of 3.4% in the year ahead, but warns that the continent faces a lost decade unless there is debt relief. It says COVID-19-related spending has swollen many countries' borrowings. And without more aid, 39 million Africans are at risk of falling into extreme poverty. Joining us now is Sakim Wumi Adesina. He's president of the African Development Bank. So fantastic to have you on the show. These are devastating numbers. Good to have you with us. These are devastating numbers. And just on top of the 39 million Africans that are at risk this year, we already saw over 30 million Africans falling into extreme poverty in 2021. These are devastating numbers. Absolutely. You know, I mean, we've never seen anything like this before. I mean, the, the growth rate last year, uh, we, we projected uh, growth rate last year was minus 2.1%. That is the lowest growth rate in 50 years in Africa. You know, you don't see the, the virus, but if the effects of it, it's, it's just so mind-boggling. You know, uh, the, the GDP of Africa went down by $175 billion. Uh, last year, you know, we had uh, 30 million people that went into extreme poverty. This year, if that trend continues, it's going to be 39 million people going to extreme poverty, hunger and all of that. It's, it's, it's been just quite a lot. And of course, the, the issue is that's not all just negative, that we project that Africa will grow back. You know, we, we project 3.4% grow back uh, uh, this year. But all of that is conditional on two things. One is access to vaccines. And secondly, is the issue of debt. And on the issue of access to vaccines, and earlier on the show, I was listening to that. That is actually a big problem for us because we don't have that luxury. You know, so far, Julia, uh, uh, 14.6 million uh, vaccines have been delivered in Africa, you know, and people can't even get a shot in their hand. And that 14.6 million is only 1% of what we need, actually. You know, talk less of getting to 60, 60% of herd immunity. So we are way off mark on that. I think that is very, very important to improve access uh, of Africa to vaccines. We need to have vaccine solidarity. COVAX is doing a great job. But look, the amounts are still in minuscule as far as we are concerned. We need to actually have global solidarity on this. But move beyond that. We must have also vaccine uh, justice, making sure that everybody has the vaccines. Look, really, if we deal with this pandemic in one part of the world and we don't deal with other parts of the world, we are all going to back to, uh, 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 to the same uh, square, uh, square one. And so absolutely, we must make sure that we ramp up access to vaccine. Africa needs it in quantity, it needs it on time, and it needs it at an affordable price. Uh, yeah, I was going to say it's the cost of it too. Just very quickly, in terms of the predictions that you're making for, for 2021, and you are anticipating a growth recovery of, of sorts, how long are you anticipating it takes to get some kind of herd immunity across the African continent? I know it's an incredibly difficult number to to try and predict at this stage, but we're talking years. 
Well, you know, the, the faster we get the vaccines, the better. You know, yeah. I just told you that we got 21 percent uh, right uh, in terms of people getting the jabs in their hands. And so, you know, to get a hard immunity, you need to be at 60 percent. So you're looking at at least 840 million uh, doses. So it's going to take, you know, I, I don't see that happening for a, another year or two because at the, at the slow pace of producing the vaccine and getting them out, it's just going to be very, very difficult. And I'm quite concerned about, about that. And of course, you know, the, the longer it takes uh, for Africa to get Africans to get vaccinated, of course, now you see Europe saying you can't travel if you don't have uh, vaccine passports. You know, people are going to, you know, think Africa is the last zone to, to get access to vaccines. I don't want that to happen. And so for us as African Development Bank, we're also looking beyond just the current situation. We're looking midterm, uh, mid medium term and also long term. You know, I, I can't accept that 1.4 billion people have to be running from pillar to post looking for vaccines. We at African Development Bank have therefore decided that we're going to support Africa to have quality healthcare infrastructure and also make sure that it develops its own pharmaceutical capacity. We ought to be producing vaccines in Africa, not running from pillar to post. Yeah, and it's it's not just about the short term, to your exact point. It's about building for the medium and the longer term, too. Final question on the shorter term, and then we'll talk about what needs to be done by the international community to try and support the continent here. I read a World Bank report that suggested that during the pandemic, around a third of workers in 15 of the largest nations in Africa stopped working. It, it sort of ties not only to efforts to address the pandemic and the healthcare costs and supporting people who aren't working, but what about the risk of social unrest if more isn't done by the international community to support the recovery and, and a stronger recovery across the continent. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, if, if uh, you know, if you look at it during the pandemic, you know, everybody was talking about, about the, 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 the lockdowns. The lockdowns had a lot of impact on poor people. You know, at social distancing was impossible because a lot of people were living in very poor neighborhoods, very poor ventilation. You know, for many people, they have the risk of dying from hunger than actually from dying from uh, on the COVID-19 right. uh, 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 situation. And so when people don't have access to food, they don't get access to uh, work because a day without work is a day without food, you know? And so that will actually create unrest because citizens uh, get so, so nervous, and so upset, and young people lost a lot of jobs. And so a lot of work has to be done. So for us really, is how do you build back? Making sure you have economic resilience. Of course, doing that with climate resilience. Also make sure that we can secure the health of the population with health health resilience. Now, the political dynamics of this is very important because when young people can't find jobs, you know, I mean, it can really worsen social, economic, and political fragility of countries. So everything, again, comes right back to making sure that we support Africa, the global community rallies around Africa to meet the fiscal deficit that it has. You know, Billy, we, we were looking for $154 billion uh, last year. That was all. You know, developed countries were pouring in trillions of dollars, over $9 trillion by G20 uh, countries. But Africa couldn't just get $150 you know, billion. I think there needs to be a total change in that to make sure Africa uh, gets the resources to, 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 to expand its fiscal space. And in particular, the issue of debt, because, you know, you can't really run up a hill, you know, with a backpack, you know, that is full of sand. And that's exactly where I was going to go next, because what we have seen is um, efforts to delay repayments. And I think the underlying core message in, in your report is it's just not enough. There needs to be debt forgiveness to allow healthier growth. And at the same time, and I do think this is important too, a, a contract between nations and those that do agree to forgive some of this debt to say, look, we will reform. We'll do things better. We'll tackle things like corruption. It's got to be a joint decision and a joint partnership to do this? 
No, Africa is not looking for a free pass. Um, you know, we're just looking for an equitable way in which the issues of Africa's physical space uh, actually gets dealt with. I must really commend the effort. You know, we've been working with the G20, uh, with the Debt uh, Service Suspension Initiative, okay, which was done, okay, for, for many African countries. Well, okay, but that's only about $5.2, $5.3 billion, and that did not cover more than $3.4 billion of the amount of bilateral debt that is actually there. So it's quite small. I think that needs to be extended so that the period of deferment continues to be helpful for African countries. Now, the G20, as you know, Julia is actually working on another framework, which will have to include the, uh, the, the, the private creditors, because, you know, the, the Eurobond, Eurobond uh, creditors actually own about almost $337 billion of Africa's $700 billion debt. So wow. if you're looking for how to resolve that debt, you can't do it without getting the, 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 them involved. Of course, the other official creditors like China that holds about $40 billion in Africa's debt. So that's good. But the problem is immediately countries want to go into that. Of course, they get downgraded by the rating agency. So nobody's going to take that risk. Now, what I find very, very useful is what uh, Secretary Yellen and, 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 and uh, Georgieva Kristalina the IMF, my sister, actually just did with the SDR, you know, that's going to issue $500 billion in new uh, 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 SDR right, uh, drawing rights at the IMF. Well, that's good because that $500 billion will allow developing countries to have almost $276 billion uh, space, you know, and uh, liquidity space, and almost maybe $25 billion will come to Africa. But my issue really is that we're going to work on that to make sure that that's good in stabilizing your reserves you know, making sure that your exchange rates can become more stable, and you can also go to the capital markets and borrow more money. But actually, I don't want people going to the capital markets to go borrow more money. We've got right now $337 billion of commercial creditors. What we should be also doing is making sure we use some of that money to make sure that it can support African countries to pay back the debt so we can run faster. To grow, we've got to grow faster, but we can't do it with that debt overhang behind us. And finally, Julia, I think that, you know, to your point on policy reforms, you know, I think it's time really to have an Africa uh, a financial stability mechanism that is actually homegrown, that works together to make sure that we mutualize our funds, we make sure we avoid this kind of uh, spillover effects that comes from uh, global pandemics like this or maybe any fiscal uh, shocks that we get, and make sure that the policy reforms, the macro policy reforms, and also the fiscal policy reforms that we need to do are endogenous, it's done in Africa, and this is very important because if you go to capital markets and borrow a lot of money, there are no policy conditionalities to it. You can use it for anything you want. But I think yes. that's not a prudent way to actually manage debt. And we've got to manage the debt of Africa. And that's exactly what we're going to do going forward. Oh, I could keep you talking on this for several hours. Come back and talk to us again, please, because there were so many points that you raised there, including the proportion of debt with China as well, that has huge implications going forward. We will discuss this again. So great to have you on and um, a fantastic great. report great. to read. Stay Tough well. reading. Thank you. Yes. The president of the African Development Bank there. All right, the market opens next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move and U.S. stocks entering the final trading day of the week. The Dow holding up, but we are seeing fresh weakness in tech as bond yields rise once again, lots of churn for the U.S. majors in recent days, though still on target for the best week on Wall Street in more than a month because we've had some really tough ones. Those $1,400 direct payments to U.S. households set to hit bank accounts as soon as this weekend. And perhaps that will give consumers added spending power 
pretty soon. New earnings oomph perhaps for U.S. firms too. This week's volatility, however, yet another example of the March madness that has a habit of rattling Wall Street. And Christine Romans joins us now. Christine, happy Friday. We've made it almost to the end of the week. A volatile week, but a week that has defined a year in terms of the point that we're at in the COVID crisis. Good for investors. It's it's just remarkable to me the context and perspective you can take when you look over the past year, right? A year ago, we could never have imagined the Dow would be up 38% over the year. We had just had a pandemic declared in this week. We had a couple of the worst intraday moves we've seen in the Dow and the S&P in history. The Dow fell something like 2,000 points on one day. We had, you know, uh, triggers, uh, curbs that were triggered and just really a terrible feeling for the stock market as we tried to figure out what was going to happen with this coronavirus pandemic. And it ushered in a recession. But we know that there were green shoots in that scorched earth last spring. And in fact, uh, this fire hose of money from the Fed and from Congress and this amazing scientific progress on vaccines, all of these things um, really saved the day. And while Americans have had an unprecedented year, investors, investors have been bullied all along the way. I mean, imagine the Dow up 38 percent where we were um, a year ago this week. And, you know, we have these March panics. I mean, Julia, it was a dozen years ago this week that it was 666 in the S&P. Do you remember uh, the Dow at 6,400? I mean, the Great Recession, so bad it had its own brand new nickname. And the, uh, what, the S&P is up 482% since then. So I say don't beware the Ides of March. Buy the Ides of March. (laughs) I know. Never bet against the market. I guess that's the moral of the story. If you're a longer-term investor, you're going to be fine here. Speaking of longer term investing, digital art, Christine, what what do you think of paying 69 or near 70 million dollars for a piece of digital art, a sign of froth or a sign of a new asset class? Je ne comprends pas. I cannot (laughs) understand the economics of the art market in normal times and certainly not in tech bubbly times, I propose that you and I spend a couple of hours later this afternoon with our laptops and try to figure out something that we can contribute to this frothy market, because that sounds like an easy buck to make in my mind. I was going to say, it's all Greek to me, but you're going for French, so we'll stick with that. We'll stick with that. Christy Romans. It's an international program, Julia, an international program. Oh, no, I know, and I loved it. I really loved it. But actually, we didn't have to wait a few hours, because we're going to talk about it next uh, on the show. So, Stick around, viewers, and Christine, you can listen as well. Okay. <laughs> We're going to do our best. Thank you. All right, so let's talk about that art. It's an online auction the artist Beeple, perhaps many others, will never forget. Millions! What? Oh, my God! 69 million. I think it probably means digital art is here to stay. Yes. $69 million for digital art. Welcome to the world of NFTs. The CEO of Christie's, the house that auctioned that art. Up next. Welcome back to First Move. A digital artwork which took 13 years to create has sold for nearly $70 million at auction. The piece is called Every Days, the first 5,000 days, and is the work of an artist better known as Beeple, 
who's now the third most valuable living artist behind Jeff Koons and Dave Hockney in the world. If you look, it's a collage. Every little square is a picture in its own right. But what's also special is that it's a so-called NFT, and that stands for non-fungible token, an asset that has been verified using blockchain technology. Whoa, stick with me. Let's just take a step back. What does this all mean? Well, here's a physical fungible item. A dollar is fungible. One dollar, much the same as another. Now, here is a non-fungible item. It's some art I made before the show. It's one of a kind. I know, I know what you're thinking. I've missed my calling. Now, in the case of the Beeple artwork, we're looking at a digital one of a kind. Now, it doesn't have to be a picture. It could be a GIF or music or even a video clip, all authenticated by the creator. That's part of what makes an NFT. Now, Jack Dorsey, the CEO of Twitter, is even looking to sell the first ever tweet as an NFT. Why, you might ask? Why bother? Why not just copy and paste it for free? Well, by turning my masterpiece into an NFT, I digitize it, I authenticate it, I can sell it, and using blockchain technology, I can track who owns it, and I can even get a cut every time it changes hands. So if you buy it, you have the joy of owning a Julia Chatterley original and you can store it in your digital wallet or sell it on for a profit once I'm a world famous artist. Yes, you could be waiting a while, but joining us now, the CEO of Auction House Christie's that facilitated the Beeple sale, Guillaume Ceruti, joins us now. Guillaume, great to have you on the show. I think there's going to be a lot of people out there that are completely mesmerized by what's going on. Just explain why Christie's decided to be the first auction house to get involved with NFTs and this particular part of the market. Hi, Julia. Thank you for having, thank you for having me. Uh, yes, it was uh, yesterday one of these uh, amazing moments, exciting moments that sometimes we live on the art market. The last one I remember like this was when we sold the uh, Da Vinci's Salvador Mundi four years ago for record price. Yesterday, it was something of the same magnitude, this feeling to discover a new world and that clearly there will be a before and an after. Uh, so we sold yesterday a digital uh, work of art for record price uh, using uh, the um, uh, blockchain technology, uh, which provide, as you rightly said, the proof of authenticity and unicity of the work. That's, that's what happened yesterday. Um, it's very important to understand that this world, this art community did exist before, but today the NFT and the blockchain technology together give these artists a safer marketplace because their works, their digital works can be proved as being unique and authentic through the blockchain technology. And that's why Christie's decided to connect with this uh, art community and the existing platforms to build this auction sale and to, uh, you know, reach this record price. And this is the key with NFTs or non-fungible tokens. It's that authenticity, the immutability protections for something that's digital versus what you would do probably far more easily in the physical art world where you say, look, we've authenticated this. It's far easier to copy it in the digital world until this moment where it's now authenticated and stored, to your point, using blockchain technology. This is the difference. Absolutely. And that's a key difference. And that's what what clearly was missing uh, a few years ago. And, and today, 
this market is much safer and especially for the artist, they can now create and sell their works in a safer environment where authenticity and unicity and the property of their work is proved and secure in the blockchain technology. Okay, so let's just show our viewers the reaction of Beeple when he was watching this auction and then the price was finalized. Uh, I don't even, it's, I, yeah. I probably should have put all these interviews off a few hours or days or weeks until it was more than like, oh, uh, what? I don't even know. Like, I can't even. It, it's like a an unfathomable number, to be quite honest. It's just crazy. Yeah, he, he used swear words on Twitter, which we won't repeat. Look, this is it. This is the moment where where the auction ends and you see him jumping up and down. Million. I think it probably means digital art is here to stay. I'm going to Disney World! <laughs> I want to say congratulations. You're at 25250000 crazy, man. Jesus Christ, what the <gasps> I mean, there are so many pieces to that. Digital art is here to stay. I'm going to Disneyland. Some people will say is. this is this is Mickey Mouse. Some, some people will be looking at this going, it's $69 million. As the seer of Christie's that has sold all sorts of art over the years, whether it's contemporary, grandmasters, does some part of you look at this and go, $69 million for this? Well, you know, uh, we are used to, uh, to um, extraordinary prices for us in our <laughs> auction. So, I mean, uh, I think the digital artists are here to stay and it's a new world. So, uh, of course, this price is extraordinary and it was difficult to predict such, you know, uh, a record and price before the auction. But we had absolutely no doubt that there were real great artists in the digital world. Yeah. They were unknown to the wider world, but they exist. They are real. They are here for, to stay. I have absolutely no doubt about this. And I can also tell you that what we have done uh, yesterday and over the last day with this sale will be repeated. That's a world that we will continue to explore. We will partner with uh, digital art platforms and with artists uh, because it's just connecting two worlds, the traditional world the art, traditional art market and this uh, digital art market that still existed before yesterday. What happened yesterday is just that we have revealed this world uh, to, to the broader world. And using the crypto space, did the buyer, by the way, buy in currency, fiat currency or in digital coins, Ether? I know you accept Ether. Absolutely. We, we, we have given the option to pay in dollars or in Ether, so he will decide. We are discussing this with him. He has the choice, clearly. All, all our bidders yesterday and before had the choice to do this. Uh, so, yes, absolutely. Uh, interestingly, uh, there were 33 uh, active bidders in this sale. 30 were new to Christie's, which proves that, oh. you know, that there is something real here. Uh, we, have, we have open a new, uh, you know, the, the door on a new world. But, 30, but I, 33 bidders, 30 were new to Christie's, 24 are aged less than 40 years old. Hmm. Did the player buy in crypto, Guillaume? Can you tell me? 
I think it will. Absolutely. He can. <laughs> and you, I, I think it will. Okay, very quickly. Beeple tweeted out a picture of what looks to be a digitized Mona Lisa. And I just wonder for people like Jeff Koons, for um, David Hockney, who also sold physical art, do you think they come back now and go, you know what, I'm going to digitize my art, wrap it like an NFT and sell it? Do you think these guys will come back to this market and go, I'm going to utilize the opportunity? And what will that mean for the value of their physical art, Guillaume? Well, they will decide. They are great artists. They will decide the, the way they want to express their art. Uh, as you know, David Hockney is already using uh, digital tools yes. uh, for his art. He will decide. But I want to emphasize again that these digital artists have been active, take people, for example, for many years. They have invested these uh, segments and this technology and this way of creating and expressing their creativity exclusively. So uh, uh, while others have chosen to express their art in a different way, uh, let's see if, if, you know, there can be a combination of the two. I don't know, mm. frankly, but, but I'm sure that in both worlds, the traditional and the digital world, they are great artists. I have absolutely no doubt about this. What you're saying is crypto basically unlocked the value and the opportunity by being able to authenticate and protect the intellectual property. Guillaume, I have to let you go, but very quickly, I just wanted to get your potential valuation judgment on the physical form of my art or, or the digital version, of course, too. Do I have potential? Well, I didn't know you were also an artist. You are, you are so <laughs> versatile. I will suggest that you go to Maker's Place, which is the platform we use and we partner with for this sale, because they will uh, open a crypto space for you where you can sell your art and have it encrypted and protected through blockchain. That's my recommendation. And then maybe one day you will be at Christie's. Who knows? <laughs> I am so excited. Thank you so much. I fear you're being polite, you. but, but, but I'm grateful either way. Yom, great to chat to you, the CEO of Thank Christie's you. there. Fantastic Bye. work. Fascinating uh, 24 hours. All right, Mel, first move after the break. And I will be here. <laughs> Welcome back to the show. Ever heard of the cloud kitchen? Well, with a growing demand for online food delivery, a new business model is emerging. They cook only for delivery and offer multiple restaurants the flexibility to outsource their food production. Eleni Jokos shows us one in Dubai as part of our Think Big series. It's peak lunch hour in Dubai, and the chefs at Kitopi are preparing food for 40 different restaurants simultaneously. It's a tall order made possible by a high-tech commercial space known as a cloud kitchen. Think of it as a kitchen that allows brands to scale up. Our team members are actually the ones cooking the food on behalf of brands in a shared resource logic. The restaurant industry's next big idea is outsourcing food production to cloud kitchens like Kitopi. CEO Mohamed Balut launched Kitopi in Dubai in 2018 to integrate and digitalize restaurant supply chains. Global brands like Papa John's and Ichiban use kitchens to save money on their physical restaurants and deliver to clients faster. It all starts with an online order. That order goes straight into our kitchen. We cook the food, we pay the brand a royalty fee for the right to use the brand, and then the aggregator and 3PL services come in and pick up the order once it's done. 
Equipped with an in-house built smart kitchen software, Kitopi's cloud kitchens can effectively cook for multiple brands and process up to 3,000 orders a day. The purpose of our software is to solve three key things. From an operating perspective, it's to solve quality of food, availability of food, and speed of, speed of living of food. Thanks to license agreements with around 200 restaurant chains, Kitopi uses the same recipes and ingredients to meet customer expectations. They want the food delivered fast, they want excellent quality, and it always to be consistent. This market is expected to grow to $71.4 billion globally by 2027, according to Allied Market Research. Some brands like New York's Bondi Sushi are also outsourcing to Kitopi to expand in the region with lower costs, a move that's driving Kitopi's growth in the Middle East. Your brand in New York, you want to expand to Dubai, you license your brand out to us, in a matter of two weeks, you're live. With its smart tech and structured organization, cloud kitchens are becoming the next business model for restaurant brands to keep thriving in the online era. Eleni Jakas, CNN. All right, and one last look at the action on Wall Street. Another tale of two markets underway this session. The Dow filled with reflation firms that will do well as economies improve on track for its fifth straight record close. Small cap stocks also rallying too, but tech continues to be where the volatility is down some 1.1%. This coming as bond yields continue to rise. The U.S. 10-year bond yield once again, as you can see, above that 1.6%, touching one-year highs. Look to the bond markets and you'll see the reaction going on in the stock markets. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they'll be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. Search for at CNN. I'm off to register some digital art. Look, there's my signature. Stay safe. Connect the world with Becky Anderson's next. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.